Well, howdy. Good to be with you all again. Uh, if you don't know me, my name is Joshua Coleman. Um, my wife is uh, a covenant child who grew up in this church, and uh, Tim Fox was one of the pastors that did my wedding. Um, Chris and Diane Corley are my parents-in-law, and so every time I get to be here with you, I'm just uh, ecstatic about it. I love this church. I love worshiping with you. Um, so thanks for having me back, and it's just an honor to be with you. Um, if you have your Bibles, uh, today we're going to be looking at one verse. Um, so I was talking to James and saying, hopefully I won't go over because I've only got one verse. Um, <laughs> we'll see. Uh, but uh, I'm really excited to get to, to bring this verse and to look at it with you. Um, if you have your Bible, it's, it's 1 Corinthians 8, 6. And uh, there's just a lot of distilled um, beautiful theology in this one verse. It's one verse, uh, but contained in this one verse, in, in this one sentence, uh, we have essentially a, a fully-fledged doctrine of God, a doctrine of, of man, who are we, and, and a doctrine of Christ, who, who is Jesus. Um, almost the whole Christian worldview is actually contained in, in this one verse. And so I, I'm really excited to get to look at it with you. And you know, I, I think that there's a lot that Paul has in common with us uh, as he's writing this verse. When Paul writes this verse, he's, he's writing to a, a church that lives in a polytheistic culture, a pagan culture that's seeking after and worshiping imminent things in their world. They're, they're, they're worshiping idols. Uh, he's, he's writing to a church that's fragmented, it's divided. Uh, he's, he's writing to a church... Um, that can't seem to agree with each other. He, he says at the beginning of Corinthians in, in chapter one, some of you say, I follow Peter. And some of you say, I follow Paul. And some of you say, well, I follow Christ. And you're all disunified. You're all arguing with each other. And so Paul is writing to a, a fractious church, a church that's disunified in a day that's disunified in a culture that's polytheistic. So it believes in all these different gods who are themselves disunified. And, and, and what Paul has to say to that church in that disunified moment, in that disunified time, it was profound and powerful for them, but I hope you'll see that we also live in a fractious time. We also live in a culture that's full of idols. We also live uh, in a church that sometimes is divided. Uh, the evangelical church right now is dividing, but across denominations, there's a lot of fractiousness. There's a lot of disunity. And, and what Paul has to say to the, the Corinthian church in the midst of their disunity is profound for us too. We also struggle with disunity. We also live in a polytheistic pagan culture that worships the idols of the things that are made by their human hands. And so I, I hope you'll see the, the relevance of this passage as we jump into it. And uh, just, just to illustrate some of this for you... Um, I went to high school at a small private Christian high school, and so uh, I was able to play football. I don't know if I would have been able to play football if I went to a bigger school, but I went to a small school. And so, uh, believe it or not, I was a linebacker. Too, too small to really be a linebacker, uh, but at my level, I could be a linebacker. And I, I loved playing football. Um, but I was, I was talking to Chris last night about uh, the two seasons that were probably most memorable in my mind, they taught me a lot about leadership, about life. Uh, my sophomore season, we had the most talented team that we had ever had at Brazos Christian School. We were 
touted before the season. Uh, many people were saying that, you know, we would win state, that, that this was going to be our year. Um, the, the previous year, that senior class had been juniors, and they had been big contributors, and now they were the seniors. Now they were the leaders. And uh, I remember that as we went to football camp and we did two-a-days and all of those things, we were just incredibly disunified because we had a new head coach who had been the defensive coordinator, and then the previous head coach was now the offensive coordinator. And so some of the seniors wanted to follow one coach. Some of the seniors wanted to follow a different coach. Most of the seniors did not respect the head coach, and they also didn't agree with each other about what direction they wanted the team to go in. And so all year, we just struggled to get on the same page. I mean, we had seniors on the line changing the play that the, that the coach had called in. Uh, we had fights in practice between seniors. We had some uh, underclassmen following different seniors, some saying, oh, well, I'm on Colby's side, or some saying, no, I'm on Eric's side. And so we, we had a very disunified team, and it was actually uh, the worst season that I had in my four years of football, even though it was the most talented team that we probably had all four years. Uh, we, we lost in the first round of playoffs. It was very disheartening. But I remember the next year I was a junior, and the seniors who were the up-and-coming leaders of the team called the team meeting the first day of summer workouts. And they, they brought us all into a huddle. The coach was not in the room. And they said, this year we're going to state. And we want every one of you to be here every day this summer. We're going to work hard. We're going to get after it. And if you see any of us seniors slacking, we give you permission to call us out. Because you better believe if you're slacking, we're going to call you out. Because we're going to state. And our coach is an amazing coach. He played in the NFL. It makes no sense for any of us to question his call. We're following that man to state. If you see any of us talk back to the coach, you call us out. We're giving you, the freshman, permission to call us out. Because none of us is bigger than the goal, the purpose. The reason this team exists is to go to state. That's what we're doing. I learned a lot about leadership from those seniors. After every game, we were undefeated, by the way, that season. We did go all the way to state. And... That, that season, after every game, the seniors would huddle us up and they would point out things that the underclassmen did that week in practice that set them up to be their best selves in the game. Right? They were the starters. The underclassmen did not play. But they said, because you did this in practice, you prepared me to play well in this game. And so they, we were unified. But what was interesting is the whole year before, all our coaches talked about was unity. And we were completely disunified. You don't become unified by talking about unity, oddly enough. You become unified by aiming at the same goal, by having the same higher purpose, by, by striving towards the same end. And, and what I hope you'll see is that 1 Corinthians 8.6 is that for us. That this is our highest goal. This is our highest calling. We have a message worth bringing to the nations. It's the, it's the message they most need to hear. It's the message we need to proclaim. We need to, to keep it in our own hearts. We need to keep it foremost in our mind. Because if we lose sight of this message, we will become disunified. But if we keep Jesus as Lord first and foremost in our minds, then the body of Christ will be unified and it will shine as a light to the nations that desperately need to know that the God in heaven has come down and he's come for his people. And so I, I hope you'll see that. I'm about to read the passage and then I'll pray and then we'll jump into the sermon. But as, as I read the passage, I, I want you to, to see that almost the whole Christian faith 
is contained in this one sentence. Who is God? Who are we? Who is Christ? So I'll read now God's holy and errant inspired word. It's absolutely true. And it's given to us in love for our good. 1 Corinthians 8, 6 says this. Yet for us, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. This is the word of the Lord. It's absolutely true. It's given to us in love for our good. Please come with me now as we go to the Lord and ask for his help in the preaching of his word. Heavenly Father, as we come into your presence today, Lord, we're in awe of your majesty. We worship you. We laud your name. And as we come to this text, as we, as we seek your face through your word, I ask that your spirit would be among us. I ask that you would use my mouth, use my lips. Speak to us in our hearts. Speak to each of us through your word. I pray and ask these things, Heavenly Father, in your name, so that your name might be glorified. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So as I said, this is a deep text. It's, it's a rich text. It's one sentence, but there's so much packed into it, doctrinally, spiritually. And, and the first uh, beginning of uh, just the very first line, the first statement says this, yet for us there is one God. And, and this is a radical statement in Paul's context. Paul is writing to a Corinthian church that lives in the midst of the Roman Empire that serves many gods. And, and these gods disagree on what is good. Um, Plato and, and Cicero and all of the greatest pagan philosophers who, who believed in this religion realized that there was something inconsistent in it uh, because the gods themselves disagreed on what was good. And they were capricious and, and, and they cheated on their wives and uh, they weren't worthy of worship. Cicero, who's a pagan, growing up in this religion, looked at his religion and said... This can't be right. Because these gods, they disagree on what's good, so it doesn't give us direction. We, we, we're disunified because our religion says the gods are disunified. And Cicero, I mean, this is so interesting. In Calvin's Institutes, he quotes Cicero over and over again in the beginning of the Institutes because he's pointing out Cicero was right when he said, if there is a god, there, there has to be one. There can't be many. It has to be one, and he has to be good. Cicero looked at his religion and said, our gods aren't good. They're not worthy of our worship. If there is a God, there must only be one, and he must be good. He must be the source of beauty, the source of truth. And he was right about that. He, just, he, he was searching. He didn't know who that God was. Well, Paul comes to the Corinthian church, and he says, you have a message to proclaim to the nations. The nations are, are seeking. They're, they're grasping after something, and they don't even fully know what it is. And you have the message. You have the thing that they're searching for. You know that there is one God in heaven. That, that he's unified, that he's good, that he's true, that he's beautiful. He's the source of those things. And this is a message that everyone around you needs to hear. It's, it's, a, it's an incredibly grounding thing. It's an incredibly unifying thing to realize there is one God in heaven. And, and Paul, because he's a good Jew, is pointing back to the Shema. Right? If, you, if you go back and you look at Deuteronomy uh, 4.6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This is something that the people of God had proclaimed for their whole existence. Since, since God called the people to himself, since, since Abraham left and, and followed God he knew not where, to, to a promised land, 
the, the people of Israel had been proclaiming that our God is one. And, and Paul is saying this message that our forefathers have, have proclaimed, our forefathers in the faith have proclaimed, it's, it's true. And, and we need to keep that preeminent in our mind right now, in this day and age, that our, our God is one. If you think about the Old Testament, right? Maybe the, the best picture of the cross from the Old Testament, the Exodus. When uh, Pharaoh believed himself to be a god and the Egyptians served many gods, what did Yahweh do to, to save his people from the enslavement to Pharaoh? Is he actually defeated each of, the, each of the Egyptians' gods one by one through the ten plagues? God was showing himself to be preeminent. That there, there may be many idols, but there's one God. And Pharaoh kept doubling down and doubling down to his own detriment. Uh, Boniface, who is uh, a saint, um, a, a Christian from a long time ago, um, he's, he's called the Apostle to the Germans. He, he took the gospel to the Celtic people who were very warlike. And, and they had very warlike gods. And they, they worshipped this oak tree. And, and they believed that if anyone did anything to this oak tree that... Uh, they would be struck dead. And Boniface said, okay, well, my God is the true God, not the God of this oak tree. And he challenged them. And they said, you better not do anything to that oak tree. You'll be struck dead. And he said, oh, really? And he took a, an axe and he cut the tree down. And he said, there's one Lord in God. He's not the God of the oak tree. He's the God and Father of all. He created all things. And the German people en masse turned to follow Jesus because of that courage that Boniface had to proclaim this message. Bob Dylan, uh, a, a singer and songwriter from uh, the recent past, wrote a great song where he says, you got to serve somebody. It may be the devil in hell or it may be the Lord Almighty, but you got to serve somebody. And as for us, the people of God, we know who we will serve. And when we have a message that the nations need to hear, that there is a God in heaven and that you can have a relationship with him. You can be connected to the transcendent, the holy God. He's one. He's all-encompassing. He's, he's transcendent. And, and here's the thing. Uh, we, we might be tempted to think that our culture is atheistic, but it, it's really not. Our culture is idolatrous. During the, the French Revolution, this is so fascinating to me. I think it, it tells us so much about the human heart. During the French Revolution, uh, the movement of the French Revolution was based on the idea that, uh, that religion and Christianity were false and that uh, reason would set us free. That human reason, untrammeled by religion, was what would bring us to utopia. And what came out of that belief was the reign of terror and then the rise of Napoleon and then more blood than had ever happened in a war before that. And during that reign of terror, when the mob ruled and people were executed right and left, uh, they confiscated Notre Dame Cathedral and then they turned it into what they called the Temple of Reason. It's so interesting to me that, that the, the, the people whose movement was atheistic, as soon as they said, we're not Christian, they didn't really become materialist atheists. They were still religious at heart because we all are. Because we have a God-shaped hole in our heart. Everybody worships. 
Nobody, nobody can get around it. Everybody worships. And so these, uh, these French revolutionaries, they set up a cult of reason with their own rituals, their own prayers. And in the Notre Dame Cathedral, they worshipped the goddess of liberty and they worshipped reason, human reason. They actually had worship services. It's so interesting to me. You, you can't escape it. You're going to serve somebody. Who will you serve? Paul says you ought to serve the one true and living God. And he, he then goes on to say that, that this God created all things. He says, for, for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. So, so this God created everything that we see. He, a, a, every breath that we take is actually a gift from this God. Every good and beautiful thing that we experience is a gift from this God. That uh, God actually is owed our allegiance because he is the creator. He's created everything. He, there's one God, he created everything. So that means he's owed our allegiance. He's owed our respect. He's owed our worship. Then he goes on to say, there is one Lord and there, there's one God, the Father. And, and so I think this is so interesting because we, we implicitly owe God our allegiance because he created us, because he's king of the universe. But also, he's worthy of our worship. And he's not only transcendent, but he's also imminent and personal and relates to us like a, like a, like a good father does to his children. The lie that launches a million sins is that God is not a good dad, that God is not a good father. Right? In, in, in the garden, that was, that was Satan's primary aim was to get Adam and Eve to believe God is holding out on you. He's, he's, not, he's not good. But James tells us, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So don't be deceived by that lie. God, God is worthy of your worship. He's worthy of your praise because he's good, because he's a good father who loves his children. He's all powerful and he uses that power for the good of his children and those who are called according to his purposes. And we all need that. We all want that. We all see wickedness and, and, and we're repulsed by it and we wish, you know, there has to be some justice. There has to be someone who brings justice. And there is. We, 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 we live in a time that, that's, that's crying out that they need to know there's a heavenly father. We need to know, they need to know it. Your, your non-Christian friends, they, they're struggling because they don't have a heavenly father who's at work in the midst of the muck and the mire of life. When you despair, you have a God to turn to who loves you, who you can cry out to as father. That's what Jesus taught us when he taught us the Lord's Prayer. He taught us to call him Father, our Father who art in heaven. And so as Christians, we have a beautiful message to bring to the nations that, that we serve the God who created everything. He's one and he's good. And actually, we are created for him. We exist for relationship with him. You, you can't get around it. You're going to serve somebody. You're going to serve somebody. It should be the, the, the only one who actually is worthy of that worship. And, and that's the God who created you, the God who is your father, and the God for whom you exist. 
This is, uh, Paul is uh, essentially saying that we have a telos, we have a purpose. And, and our purpose, our highest goal, our highest aim is to be in relationship to the God who created all things. That, that the transcendent and holy God who relates to us as father has offered us the ability to be in relationship with him. It's an amazing thing. It's an incredible message. Your non-Christian friends need to hear it. You need to remember it because it's amazing. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. And this is, this is what Augustine knew, right? Augustine, uh, it's, it's fascinating to me that, that Augustine, he, he, he knew that God was good and he himself wanted to be good, but he had some addictions. He had some idols in his life and he didn't want to let go of them. And he knew that to follow God, he would have to let go of these lesser things. And so he prayed a prayer that millions of people have prayed in their hearts. I think many of us have prayed in our hearts at some point. He said, God, make me good, but not yet. God, make me chaste, but not yet. I'm not ready to let go of my idols, to fully go in, to fully follow the one true living God. Even though he knew that that was the good, even though he knew that the source of the good and the true and the beautiful was God, he still wanted to hold on to his idols. Because they gave him a sense of control. They gave him a, sen- a sense of, uh, of satisfaction. But it wasn't until he realized that, that a true and better satisfaction was found in God that he was able to relinquish what had hold of his heart. This is, this is the expulsive power of, of, a, of a better affection. That not only is God the Father who is owed our worship because he created us, but he's also good And he's also the thing that you were designed to love and to find satisfaction in. There's actually no satisfaction to be found anywhere in this world apart from the one true and living God. And if you have have a relationship with him, then everything else falls into place. Everything else has its proper place. It can be enjoyed as a derivative blessing from the one God. But if if we take any of those things and we try to put them in his place then they become tyrants in our lives. They, they destroy us. They eat us alive. Every idol will eat you alive unless you let go of that and move towards the one God who created heaven and earth. Augustine, when he finally got to the point where he realized, uh, when, 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 he, when he realized that God was worth leaving his idols for, that, that, that God was beautiful, that God was good, he wrote these words. Late have I loved you, O beauty ever ancient, ever new. Late have I loved you. You were within me, but I was outside. And it was there that I searched for you. In my unloveliness, I plunged into the lovely things which you created. You were with me, but I was not with you. Created things kept me from you. Yet, if they had not been in you, they would not have been at all. You called, you shouted, and you broke through my deafness. You flashed, you shone, and you dispelled my blindness. You breathed your fragrance on me. I drew in breath, and now I pant for you. I have tasted you, and now I hunger and thirst for more. You touched me, and I burned to know your peace. There is one God and Father, and for him we exist. And if you, if you, if you seek first the kingdom of heaven, the other things will be added to you. If, if you have relationship with him, you have everything. That's the pearl of great price. Sell everything else and follow after the one God. Because he's worthy. Because he's worthy of your heart. He's worthy of your worship. If you worship anything else, it will betray you. If you worship beauty, you'll always think you're ugly. If you worship intellect, you'll always think you're, you're not smart. 
any, any other thing that you set up will destroy you. You must worship the one true God. He's the only one who's worthy of it. And so we, we've looked now at the first half of the one sentence. And, and now we get to the second half of, of Paul's proclamation here. And he's still drawing out for us. He's, he's taking the Shema which is the proclamation of the ancient church of, of, the, of Israel, and he's, he's bringing it into higher definition. He's, he's being theological here. He's giving us a Christological understanding of the Shema. So he said there's one, one God, and then he says now there is one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So he's already said there's one God. He's not going back on that. There is one God. And then he also says there's one Lord, Jesus Christ. He said God the Father created all things. Now he says God the Son created all things. And so he's gesturing here at the full divinity of Christ. And he's also gesturing at the Trinity. That, they're, they're, that God, the, God the Father is Lord. God the Son is Lord. God the Holy Spirit is Lord. But there is one Lord, not three. That God the Father is God. God the, God the Son is God. God the Holy Spirit is God. But there are not three gods. There is one God. There is one, there's one incomprehensible. There is one infinite. There is one holy God. And so he's, he's totally in accord with the Shema. He's, as Christians, we, we can say with the ancient people of God, there is one God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. But we also have more definition. It's like the picture is, is being brought into a higher frame rate. And, and we see that that one God manifests himself in three persons. God the, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And so he's, he's, he's explaining, he's, he's, he's deepening our understanding of who God is. And, and he's, he's making a very explicit claim that Jesus is divine here because he calls him Lord, which is a term reserved for God. But then also because he says through him all things exist. It, and so he's also, he's, just as, as God the Father is, is owed our allegiance as creator, so is God the Son. We, we read John 1 earlier that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And through him all things were, that are created came into being. There was nothing created that was not created by the Father through the Son, by, by God the Father through Jesus Christ. There's one God. There's one God in three persons. Uh... In, in Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 through 17, it says this, For by him, that being Jesus, for by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So just as we were created for God the Father, we are also created for God the Son. That your only satisfaction, the only satisfaction that lasts is to be found in relationship to God the Father and in relationship to Jesus Christ. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. In Christ, all things hold together. There was never a time when Christ was not. He was before all things. He was with the Father before all worlds. As the, Athena as the Athanasian Creed says. Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 3 says this, Long ago, in many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, 
whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And if he, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus is the, 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 the everlasting son of God, the, the word of God. Jesus is, is fully God and fully man. And all of our worship, all of our adoration is owed to the one God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And so what we see here is, is, is we, we see that there's a theology here. God is Father, God is Creator, God is good. There's an anthropology here. We, we're not beings who exist independent. We're, we're not autonomous in and of ourselves. We don't exist for our own for our own existence sake we actually exist for something higher we exist for a relationship with the god who we are derivative from god is the only non-derivative being so there's god there's anthropology and then now christology who's christ christ is the lord and, and god the creator through whom all things were created and he's the way that we can actually have relationship with god the father it's actually through the Lord Jesus Christ that we're able to enter back into that relationship which we were created for and in which the greatest satisfaction, the only satisfaction can be found. It's through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I, I would ask you, is Jesus your Lord? Is Jesus your Lord? If he is, then you, you have the greatest satisfaction that there is possible to have. And you will experience suffering because the servant is not greater than the master. And he says, if you would follow me, you must pick up your cross and follow me. But that suffering leads to a pulsating joy and glory beyond your comprehension. An eternal weight of glory. Where we will see Jesus face to face. And he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful with a little, now I give you much. And so, when you, when you, when you face the trials when you face the trials and, and the tribulations of this world, you have an anchor for your soul in this, that Jesus is Lord. There's not a square inch of the universe over which Christ does not say mine, that he's the king and that we follow him. And that unifies us. It unifies us individually. It unifies us corporately because we're all seeking after the one true living God. Matthew 26, uh, 63 uh, this, is, this is a moment where the high priest is questioning Jesus. And it says this, but Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. This is a, a reference back to Daniel 7, where the, the Son of Man comes and is seated next to God the Father on the throne. Daniel 7 says this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man. He came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. And so, if, if Jesus is your Lord, then you're in the kingdom. And, and what's, what's interesting about the kingdom metaphor, uh, 
I, I, I heard this in a Tim Keller sermon. I thought it was, it was, it was really brilliant. Um, so I'm, I'm riffing off of Tim Keller because he's great. Uh, you know, the, the thing about kingdoms is they have a border. And you can be on the way to the kingdom for a really long time before you step into the kingdom. Right? If I'm trying to get to Canada and I'm in Texas, I can travel a really, really long distance. But until I cross the border, I'm not in Canada. I'm not in the kingdom. I'm getting closer to the kingdom, but I can be one foot away, one inch away from the kingdom and still be outside the kingdom. There's a decisive moment when you cross the border, when you, when you cross into the kingdom. And that moment is when Jesus becomes your Lord. When, when Jesus becomes your Lord and your Savior, when you put your faith in him for the, for the forgiveness of your sins because of the ransom that he paid for us on the cross. And so when, when you put your faith in Jesus, a transition has occurred. Uh, a, a new creation is born. If you're in Christ, you're a new creation. You've, you've entered into the kingdom. Once we were outside, once we were in the kingdom of darkness, but now we've been brought out of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved son, into the kingdom of light. Is Jesus your Lord? Joshua 24, 14 through 15 says this, now therefore, now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. In 1 Kings 18, Elijah says the same thing to the people of Israel. He says, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal, then follow him. Deuteronomy 30 says, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live. Choose life. Jesus is Lord. You have to have him as Lord to have him as Savior in, in order to enter into the kingdom. And if you, if you have him as Lord, then everything else falls into place. Because you, you actually have the thing that you were created for. You have relationship with a transcendent and holy God who's also personal, who, who comes and, and lives the perfect life that you can't live, who dies the death that you deserve, and who is raised so that you too might be raised. If Jesus is Lord, then you need not fear death. For you have an eternal weight of glory in heaven, purchased for you by your king. Jesus said, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. Those who enter it are many, but the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Jesus is Lord. Trust in him. He's worthy of it. He's worthy of your heart. He's worthy of your praise. He's, he's worthy of your adoration. He's the only one who is. Philippians 2 says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth. He's worthy. He's worthy because he has purchased for himself a people by his blood. 
He's, he's a high priest better than Aaron. He's, he's a prophet better than Moses. He's a king better than David. He's fully man through, through Mary. He's fully God by the Holy Spirit. He's the hero of ages. He's, he's the one that we've longed for. He's the one that your heart desires. Whatever you're seeking is actually really a derivative good. He's, he's really what you're seeking. And if you seek and find him, you'll find everything else. Seek first the kingdom of heaven and the rest will be added to you. Athanasius, uh, and, and I, I love Athanasius. He, he's a Old Testament, not Old Testament. He, he's an early church, church father who was exiled by different counts five or six or seven times uh, because he would not stop proclaiming that Jesus is Lord. Um, after the Council of Nicaea, and the church had said Jesus is divine, then uh, there was a lot of pressure from Constantine and, and then from a, several emperors after him to say, actually, Jesus is not divine. Um, the Roman emperor is like a, a demigod and Jesus is like a demigod, so they're kind of on the same footing. That Athanasius wouldn't agree to that, and so he was banished like five or six times. Um, he kept getting exiled, and then he would like sneak back in, and then uh, he, would, he would fight against the Arians, and then he would get kicked out again. Uh, but his whole life, he, he's, he's called Athanasius Contramundi, Athanasius against the world, because he had one message, that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is God. And in the end, that, that message has triumphed. In the end, the, the, the church stands undivided underneath God the Son, God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And, and Athanasius, in a book called On the Incarnation, he wrote this. And, and this is a really long quote, um, so I think I'll end with this. But it says, but if, any, but if any honest Christian wants to know why he suffered death on the cross, and not in some other way, we answer thus, in no other way was it expedient for us indeed that the Lord offered for our sake the one death that was supremely good. He had come to bear the curse that lay on us. And how could he become a curse? It is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Again, the death of the Lord is a ransom for all. And by it, the middle wall of partition is broken down and the call of the Gentiles comes about. Here again and see the fitness of his death that with those two outstretched arms, it was, this, it was thus that he brought nigh the ancient people of Israel with the one and the Gentiles with the other and joined both together in himself. Even so, the manifold, he foretold the manner of his redeeming death. I, if I be lifted up, will draw men to myself. Uh, again, the air is the sphere of the devil, the enemy. For it says, the prince of the power of the air. But the Lord came and overthrew the devil and purified the air and was taken away for us into heaven, as the apostle says, through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. This had to be done through death. And by what other kind of death could it be done, save by a death in the air that is on the cross? Here again, you see how right and natural it was that the Lord had to suffer thus and to be lifted up. He cleansed the air of the power of the evil one. He beheld Satan, in, Satan falling as lightning. He says, thus he reopened the road to heaven, saying again, lift up your gates, O princes, and ye lift them up, ye everlasting doors. 
For it was not the word himself who needed to open the doors, but it was us, and it was for us. No, it was we who needed it, for whom he himself upbore in his own body, that body which he offered to death on behalf of all, and then made through it a path to heaven. At Jesus on the cross, when he was lifted up between earth and heaven, he reconnected us back to God. That he went down into the tomb and he punched out the back and he made it a tunnel so that all those who are in Christ might follow after him. The favorable time is now. Behold, now is the favorable, favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. If Jesus is your Lord, then today is the day of salvation. And so we can rejoice in that. And we have a message that the world needs to hear. It's the message that their heart longs for. It's the message that unifies us. It's the message that unites us back to God. Jesus is King. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you are the word made flesh. Thank you that you saw us plunged in deep distress. Thank you that you saw us in our sin and the muck and the mire of our brokenness, the guilt of the sin that we've committed. And you did not leave us alone but that you came for us, that the Son of, Son of God came down in human likeness, lived the life we could not live, died the death that we deserved, so that he might ransom a people for himself from every tribe, every nation, and every tongue. It is his name that we praise. Lord, we lift him up. We glorify and magnify Jesus Christ, the risen Lord, the one God. We pray and ask all these uh, things. We, we worship you in the name of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.